Let me quick teach you what the word Advent means. The Latin, Adventus, means coming. It's based on the Greek word parousia, which means second coming. Okay? Let me just show you a little bit about this time period that transpires every year. As you'll see on the screen, I've got a graphic. This graphic, you'll see the birth of Jesus there in that little manger scene. Then you'll see the life of Jesus leading up to the cross. You'll see Jesus' death and resurrection symbolized in the cross. And then you'll see a time period that we're calling the church's life between the cross and the throne or Jesus's second coming. Advent celebrates the time period between Jesus's resurrection and Jesus's second coming. Now, for those of you who are like, that is a long, indefinite amount of time to celebrate. Just like a child's birthday or your birthday that you look forward to every year, Jesus's birthday is worthy of celebrating also every year. And it reintroduces the time period of waiting. And this time period of waiting is something that the church has been celebrating now for a couple thousand years. And it is our privilege and our joy and our greatest delight to introduce to you Advent for the next four weeks of our church as we wait expectantly, hopefully, that this Jesus that was born of a virgin, conceived in a virgin, grew to 33 years of life, suffered a horrible criminal death on a cross, completely innocent, but then proved he was God by resurrecting from the grave three days later. And then he descended to the right hand of, of God the Father in the throne room. And there he reigns until his second coming. And so now we're waiting. And that time period of waiting is called Advent, especially the month leading up to the birth of Jesus. Yeah, so at this time, uh, in honor of Advent, we're going to stand together. If you'd stand with me for a reading of the word. Uh, you probably saw some candles out in the lobby, and you see some candles in here. Uh, each one is representative of a theme in Advent. There are four themes and four Sundays in Advent. The first one being hope. The second being peace. The third being and the fourth being love. And so each candle represents a different theme, and the white one representing Christ himself, which we will light on Christmas Eve. And so during this time, I would just like to take a moment, if we could just all close our eyes. And let's just take a moment as we light this candle, and as we read the word, to sit in the hope of Jesus. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into the season of Advent, remembering your birth and awaiting your return, Give us the hope found in Jesus. May we live boldly in confidence that you keep your promises and that your word does not return empty. 
now as we enter into a moment of silence, as the first candle is lit, may the light of the flame represent your light of hope in the darkness of our spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Can we say thank you to the worship band this morning for leading us in the time of worship? I want to invite you out to all four Sundays of Advent this year. Each Sunday will be special in its, in its very own way. I am also at a time in my life where I only want snow on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. Can I get an amen? Hey, yeah, come on. Holy Spirit, we need you to hold back the snow until Christmas Eve and then Christmas morning. Yes. Let your grace fall in that moment, in that moment. Otherwise, keep the snow away. But that was not the case when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I depended on the snow to cancel. Yeah, come on, baby. You know it because you lived it too. So when I was a kid, I would go up to my room and I would put my Christmas PJs on on December 1st because Christmas started after Thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you, Brittany. And I put on those PJs. And I walked up to my little window in the back of my room and I put my face up against that cold window and I go, God, I know you love me. And I know you can make it snow. And tomorrow's Monday. I know, I know you can make it snow enough to cancel school, Lord. And then I'd go to bed and feel pretty guilty about that prayer. And I'd wake up and it's like raining. And I'm like, God, did you not hear that prayer? What gives? I had my face against that cold window. And then I'd go to school, and then I'd come home, and then I'd go to bed, and I would do the same thing again. I'd put on those Christmas PJs, and I'd walk up right to the window, and I would say, God, I know that you can make it snow, and I know that you love me, and you know how much I don't like school. Please, Lord, let it snow. I woke up the next morning, and it was sunshine. And this happened over and over and over again. And now is your time to confess. Have you also prayed that God would make it snow enough when you were a kid to cancel school? Yeah, come on, I saw that hand back there. Amen to your confessions, right? That is cute, and that is funny, and that is a child's dreams to have school canceled. However, there is something about growing out of childhood dreaming and wishful thinking that brings you into a time of reality when you start saying prayers that have nothing to do with God, let it snow so I don't have to go to school, right? Instead, your hope is not in the outcome of it snowing enough, snowing enough for you to not go to school. Your hope is in an outcome that's much more serious than that, much more meaningful, much more consequential than snow flying through the air. Your hope matures, out of childhood wishful thinking and wishful dreaming into something maybe more like, God, I hope that he comes back home. Or I hope that she picks up the phone. Or I hope 
that this check does not bounce. Or I hope, and then I want you to fill in the blank with that hashtag adulting life that you live. There's something about childhood, wishful thinking and hoping that kind of comes back to us in adulthood. Where we begin to put our hope and our wishful thinking in an outcome that you largely have no control over. But you're just praying with everything that you have inside of you. You're putting your face against the glass and you're asking God, please God, please God, please God. Without that Christmas bonus, my kids are not going to have Christmas this year. If she, if she doesn't pick up the phone, I, I don't know what's going to happen to her. I don't know where she is. That last fight that we had was just a little too aggressive, a little too hostile. I don't know if he'll ever come home. I just found out what my kid's been doing online. I've just found out what my kid's been doing at school. I just found out from my employer that I lost my job. And so what we do is we bring our face to that cold window and we begin hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping in an outcome that is favorable to us. I call it wishful thinking. My daughter just celebrated her sixth birthday recently, and we had our family birthday party last night. And she blew out the candles on the cake. And it reminded me of something. When I was a kid, I was told to make a wish. And it was in good fun, and it was in good form, and there was nothing wrong with that. And there's no shame on having your kids blow out candles and, and making a wish. But it made me realize that it actually shaped and formed me into an adulthood. And I'm now realizing that some of us are trapped in wishful thinking, and we call it hope. Some of us are blowing out proverbial candles, and we're just hoping that that little candle on that little cake on your birthday is powerful enough to create a favorable outcome in your life, to bring your daughter home, to bring your son home, to bring your marriage back together, to make sure that check does not bounce, to make sure you keep that job even though your employer is in the red. And I, I know that Thanksgiving and Christmas tend to, well, they certainly send the signals of being the holidays where we should be festive and happy and and sharing good tidings and joy and all of those festivities that go along with these holidays. But here's what I've discovered in adulthood is that Thanksgiving and Christmas and the holidays in general actually don't tend to renew hope. They tend to renew hopelessness. They reveal and remind us of just all of the things that we wish or that we hope for. I think that a lot of us have caught been caught rather in wishful thinking, we brand it hope, and then we live in a perpetual state of disappointment. And if you live in a perpetual state of disappointment long enough, you will find yourself misbelieving, disbelieving hope's utility. You lost someone you loved, you lost the job you really enjoyed, you lost the finances in the bank account, you lost your daughter or your son to that other girl or that other boy that you didn't think was ready for dating yet, and you begin to lose hope. Nothing like the holidays to renew hopelessness. 
But I believe by the Spirit of God, we can change this. You see, in the Old Testament, the word hope in its verb and noun form are kawa and tikwa. Can you say tikwa? Hey, good job. That was good. It means to trust and wait expectantly on an outcome. The Old Testament's version of hope, the verb kawa and the noun tikwa, is based on waiting expectantly on an outcome. It's really a part of speech. It's when I was eight and I put my face against a cold window in my room. The tikwa, the noun of hope, that the outcome of snow would cancel school. It's really just a part of speech. However, in the New Testament, the verb and the noun are ellipso and ellipse. Can you say ellipso? ellipso? Great job. It means to trust and wait expectantly on a person. These two are not the same, are they? These two are not the same thing. One places hope in an outcome that you're just wishfully thinking. You're blowing out that candle. You're pressing your face against the cold window and you're just wishing for the right outcome. Perhaps fate will take over and help me out here. When all of the stars line up just right, I will have this outcome that I need in my life so badly. That is not the New Testament's version of hope. Instead, the biggest difference is that the Old Testament's hope is in an outcome void of a person. It's really just, like I said, a part of speech. And the New Testament's version of hope is intrinsically placed in a person. So, for any of you this morning who were like, yeah, I stopped hoping years ago, Luke. I have been disappointed in life, in adult life, over and over and over again. And I have lost hope's utility. I no longer see it as a useful mechanism for my faith. So if my kids would have blow out their candles on their cake, great. But I'm no longer putting my hope in things because I'm tired of being disappointed. And for those of you who have this fatigue in you or this tiredness in you and you are just tired of being disappointed, guess what? There's hope for you. If you are experiencing a hope deficiency this Christmas, it's not because you lack the capacity to hope. It's because your hope isn't an outcome and not in a person. I know, it is sobering. All of us have succumbed to the temptation to put our hope and place our hope in an outcome that we think that if all of the environmental factors are just right, like if my house is decorated just right, when my mother-in-law or my father-in-law or my, my estranged child or my aunt or my uncle show up, they'll feel like it's a warm, welcoming environment even though there's a lot of distance between me and that person. Or if the food is cooked just right, if I, if I get the menu right, then the, the relationship will, will get right. If I get them the right gifts, then, then that'll be the, the thing I need to, to repair that estranged relationship. None of those environmental factors can hold a candle 
to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have an emptiness inside of you during Thanksgiving and Christmas and you're putting on the Sunday smile, because that's what you do, right? You come into church, you put on a smile like, I got it all together, but on the inside you're like wasting away because you have lost hope for that repaired relationship or that job that you wanted so bad or for your marriage or for your children. And I want you to fill in the blank now. You can do it. I know you can. The Israelites, who are God's chosen people, were putting their hope in an outcome of the promised land. If you have any familiarity with God's word, you'll know that they were promised land. If you're brand new to God's word, I'm so glad you're here. I want your ears to be open and your heart to be open and let the word of God wash over your soul because it could bring you right back to life. Okay? They were putting their hope in the outcome of land. When God raised up the prophets... He used the prophetic ministry of the prophets to prophesy to them to put their hope not in the outcome of land, but in the person of the Messiah. So follow me here now. In Isaiah 7.14, it'll be on the screens to my left and to my right. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is the people of Israel. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, watch this. The prophet Isaiah that was raised up by God just told the people of Israel who needed so desperately the hope that would come with the promised Messiah, you must know that all of the environmental factors that you're trying to control are not going to actually meet the needs of your soul. What you need and who you need is a person, and that person is the Messiah. And so the same hope that we put in Jesus looking back at the cross was the same form and fashion of hope that the Israelites were able to put in Jesus before the cross. And get this, Isaiah even knew that she would be a virgin. It wasn't just a virgin birth. It was a virgin conception. The extent that God will go to, to make sure that you have the hope that you need to get through the season you are in is limitless. And Jesus is proof of that. Amen. This could be the greatest Christmas season of your life if you had the courage to graduate your hope from an outcome and into a person. How many of us right now are just so disappointed because life tends to disappoint us. And we live in this spiraling uh, headspace, right? We ruminate over things. This is classic human 101. And we're like, well, if I just change a little bit here and I tweak a little bit there, and if I can just get those little things right over here and over there, then I'll get that outcome that I need so bad. And I'm telling you right now that you won't. And I know that's sobering to hear, but I'm a pastor, so I got to tell you the truth. But Jesus is the only person who will not disappoint you. The only person who will not disappoint you. We are all fallen. We are all in need of the same Jesus. And the reality is, is that 
uh, many people will go with you for the long haul. And then some people will be a part of your life for a season, and that's, and that's okay, and that's good. But because of our fallenness and because of our humanness, we tend to um, experience disappointment at a whole new level when we experience disappointment from someone we loved and we trusted. And then, in our humanness, we take that disappointment and we project it onto God. And how many of us think that God is going to let us down because your dad let you down? How many of us think that God is also going to disappoint you because your mother disappointed you? Or your brother, or your sister, or your employer? And because of human imperfection, we take that and we project it onto God. And then we wonder why we're so disappointed. Because we've decided that disappointment is the only way we can live. Enter Jesus, who resolves all of that. <laughs> now, here's the thing about Jesus. If you decide to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean your life's going to be like, you know, puppies and butterflies, because it ain't. <laughs> it's going to come with potholes and roadblocks and hurdles and all the things. But just because life tends to disappoint you does not mean Jesus will. Jesus has every reason to show you the love that he proved on the cross, and the power that comes with his resurrected grave. And for those of you who need like a fresh burst of hope this season, a brand new, renewed strength this season, you, you just need something this Thanksgiving and this Christmas, you know who you need? You need more Jesus. The scriptures uh, will tell us there in Isaiah 7.14, here's a little uh, fun fact for you. Isaiah 7.14 was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. 700 years. Like, that's a minute, right? <laughs> to give you an idea of just how long the Israelite nation had to place their hope in the birth of Jesus, let me just break down some big parts of time for you here. So the judges period was around 400 years. The judges is when God raised up judges to mitigate and mediate most of the conflict that happened in the Israelite nation when they were occupying the land of Canaan. That was roughly a 400-year period. Well, after that was the kings, because the judges really didn't work all that well. And the time period of the kings was also roughly 400 years. And after the kings showed how human they were and how ungodly they were, God then raised up prophets. Can you guess how long that was? Roughly 400 years. From the time that Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God in the Garden of Eden to the birth of Jesus was roughly four millennium. Because the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament was also, guess what? 400 years. I did the math. That's actually 1,600 years. And pre-judges, pre, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I passed math. The intertestamental period was 400 years. So there you got 1,600 years. But pre-judges, do the math. You've got Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.15, Jesus is promised. And between that promise and the birth of Christ was roughly 4,000 years. If anybody has the right or if anyone is justified to feel disappointed, it is the Hebrew people. 
It is the Jewish people. It is the Israelites. They are the ones who are justified to feel disappointment. But let's just call a spade a spade here. Many of us are like, yeah, it feels like four millennium. It, it, life feels like 4,000 years. It feels like the thing that you are hoping for, man, I just pray, Lord, I know you love me. Please let it snow. Please dump it down, Lord God. Like no school buses anywhere. That was my longing when I was eight. And then in adulthood, you're just, you're longing for the things that matter. And then when they don't come to pass or they don't come true, it can feel like a long, long wait. It can feel so discouraging. It can feel so disappointing to have a father or a mother or a boss or a sister or a brother make a promise that they break. And then you live with that throughout your lifetime and you're just kind of hoping and grabbing onto anything well, maybe this will help resolve that feeling, or maybe this will help resolve that feeling. And you're waiting around for what feels like 4,000 years. That didn't stop God, though. The time period that the Hebrew people had to wait for the birth of the Messiah did not stop God from introducing little moments of hope along the way to make sure they would remember and recall that the person you need is coming. Look at Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Referring to the birth of Jesus out of the little town of Bethlehem. You see, God went to great lengths to ensure that this delicate and sensitive nation of people would believe his word and believe that what they needed was coming. And they could put their hope that Jesus would be born the same way that you and I put our hope that Jesus will return. It doesn't matter the time frame. It doesn't matter the environmental factors. The only thing that matters is that if you've placed your hope resolutely on the person of Jesus Christ, that is hope. That is ellipso, the Greek word for hope. It is placing it on a person. Now get this. This is the part that's frustrating. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the great I am, God himself, created everything in six days. Everything. I would describe it as his second greatest work of all time was the creation of the world, the creation of the heavens and the earth, the creation of you and me. Six days. That's all he took. And then for his first greatest work of all time, the, like the, the greatest gold medal blue ribbon work of all time or the work of redemption of mankind took roughly four millennium. Four millennium. Why in the world would Jesus 
who was involved in creation from day one, be okay with creating everything in six days. But then creating the system that would recover everything took 4,000 years. Well, here's, here's how, this is just Pastor Luke's opinion. This is just my opinion. I believe that God, and you've heard this saying before, probably in your circles, I believe God is willing to go at the speed of relationships. Here's what I mean. If God rushed the plan for redemption, if God just sped it up and expedited the plan to rescue all people unto himself, what time would there be to develop a relationship with him? I believe God is so careful and so thoughtful and so planned out and so detailed that the four millennium that it took to introduce Jesus in the manger, God in the manger, wealth in poverty, would grow and suffer a criminal's death on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God towards sin so that you and I could know the creator of the heavens and earth and then ascend to the right hand of the Father. And now we're just like, when are you coming back, Jesus? Anytime now, the world's not getting any better from what I can tell. Are you coming back anytime soon? But yet God is willing to go at the speed of relationships. My question for you this morning is, is your relationship with Jesus meaningful enough that you have placed your hope in him? Or is he a teacher and you're a student in the classroom? You've respected him, and his teachings are okay, and he, obviously he's a historical figure, but have you placed your hope in him? Have you pressed your face against cold glass and said, Jesus, there is only one possible way that this scenario that I'm faced with will resolve in my favor, and it's got to be because of you. It's got to be in you. And for those of you who have not placed your hope and your trust in Jesus, do not start the Advent season, this incredible time of reflection, without developing a faith inside of you that you can place all of your hope on this God-man, Jesus. It is the most important relationship you will ever have in your entire life, is the one you have with Jesus. And the relationship you have with Jesus participates in the life of the church. And for those of you who are coming in this morning, you're just like, you know what, Luke, I got a little bit of church hurt from my last church. I'm, I've, got, you know, I've got you all at arm's length right now. I'm here, but I'm not you know, fully present yet. We are imperfect people worshiping a perfect God. We will disappoint you, but Jesus will never disappoint you. He will put challenges and trials in your life to help your faith grow and mature. And like James says, every trial can be a, a time of joy because it's an opportunity for your, your faith to, to grow and mature and strengthen. However, Jesus himself, the God-man who created, who knows the number of hairs on your head, he will never disappoint you, ever. And he loves you. And he wants you so much. And he proved that by crying out on the cross. What does the birth of Jesus really tell us? It tells us that God will eventually break his silence. 
And for those of you who right now are just suffering under the silent voice of God, I want you to know that the birth of Jesus proves that God breaks his silence. There's an intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament of 400 years. <laughs> and it can often feel like our lives are an intertestamental period. I'm like, oh my gosh, where is God? Like, why isn't he speaking to me? I thought that like this whole me and Jesus thing came with like Jesus speaking to me thing too, right? The birth of Christ proves that Jesus, that God will break his silence. Now, Jesus isn't getting born again. Uh, he's been born once and he died once and he'll never be born again and he'll never die again. He will return one day. So the real question that we have to ask ourselves, church family, this morning is, how does God speak to us today? Well, let's just run through a few ideas. You can take notes. The sermon notes are on the app in front of you if you've not been using those this morning. God speaks permanently in his word. If you want to hear God speak to you this Advent season, you need to pick up that dusty Bible off of your nightstand, friend, and open it. A great place to start is the Proverbs or the Psalms. They're very easy to absorb, very easy to read. It's a quick blessing. That's the way I would describe the Psalms and the Proverbs. If you're ready, just go open the book of Romans and get an idea of the depth and the breadth and the plan of God to redeem and rescue you back to himself, okay? You can really start anywhere and not go wrong. If you started in Leviticus, you might misunderstand some of the plan, okay? Because it's a little lengthy. It's a little cumbersome, okay? More on that in the new year. But God does eventually break his silence. God speaks permanently in his word. He speaks regularly by his spirit. And so for those of you who are just like, I'm all about prayer. Well, then you need to either fill a slot for the 24 hours of, of prayer um, that is going to be over, going over three days, which is 77 hours, by the way. And we need you to participate. We, we think that we want to have a reputation as a praying church. And ultimately, like, God's church prays. I mean, that's kind of like the assignment, if, if you know what I mean. So we, we want you to be a praying person. But if you're like, well, Luke, I've, I've never prayed before, but you have talked to people before. If you've talked to people before, you can pray. Because praying is talking to God. Tell them what's on your mind. Tell them what's in your heart. Tell them about your day and the struggles of that day. Tell them about the successes and the breakthroughs of that day. Tell them the setbacks. Tell them the things that you're hoping for that you now want to place on him. So God speaks regularly by his spirit, which means you got to link up with his spirit. And then finally, God speaks specifically through Jesus. If you want to know what God says, read the red letters of your Bible. Because that is what God said. That's what God said. What Jesus said is what God said. And what God said is what Jesus said. Because Jesus is God, and God is Jesus. I know, it kind of makes your head go whack, but that's the truth. That's what the Word of God says. God speaks permanently in His Word, regularly by His Spirit, and specifically through Jesus. So if you believe that God is silent this Advent season, this Christmas season, you now have no excuse. Now you can pick up the word of God. You can pick up time in prayer by yourself or with others, which is equally as powerful. Or you can read those red, beautiful letters and allow the words of God himself just come upon you and make you new again. This means that there's hope for you. This means that you have the opportunity to have that cup inside of you replenished and refilled this holiday season. 
we're, we are the same. We are all equally susceptible to the holidays either raising our hope reserves or lowering our hope reserves. And many of us have succumbed to the lowering of those hope reserves because of the disappointments of Thanksgiving and Christmas and the holidays in general. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can graduate your hope out of the outcomes, out of the, oh, I hope it snows, to, oh, I hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. That is the goal of Advent. To wait on Jesus well is to hope in Jesus well. To hope in Jesus well is to wait on Jesus well. And I believe wholeheartedly that when you wait on Jesus and you wait on him well, he will surprise you. Now, in fear of sharing the conclusion of the story, well, I'll just tell it anyhow. I pressed my face against the glass and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And I hoped and I hoped that it would snow enough to cancel school. And then it didn't again. So you know what I did? I just stopped praying for snow. <laughs> I was like, well, clearly he's either not listening to me or he just simply does not care that it snows enough to cancel school, which was my principal value when I was eight years old, right? I want school canceled. I want to go play, man. So I just stopped praying for it to snow enough. But God has a way of surprising you all at just the right time. And obviously the story breaks down theologically right? But then it snowed enough to cancel school like a week later. And I know because it snowed that I woke up, looked at the window. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's got to be at least four feet of snow out there. This is amazing. So I run to the TV and I'm looking for like the scrolling, like schools canceled, like Boone County, Hamilton County, like all these different counties. I'm like, oh, let's go. School's out. And so I run downstairs and have breakfast. And I go outside and I play. God has a way of surprising you at just the right time. And Jesus' birth was proof that God will not just meet the deeper longings of your heart, but ultimately satisfy and resolve those deepest longings at just the right time. So I don't know what you're hoping on this Christmas whatever outcome that you've placed all that hope in or all that hope on, you can now transfigure and offer all of that and onto the person of Jesus and make him responsible for the hope that you have, for the hope that you need, for the things, the desires, the longings of your heart. And you know what happens, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, that Advent creates people, new people. It creates new people. That's what it does. It gives us the opportunity to take all of that hope reserve and place it on Jesus's lap and say, you're responsible. My hope is in you, which means now I can be an engaged person with the lost, with the looking, with the suffering, with the poor, with the down and out. Nothing like Thanksgiving and Christmas to renew hopelessness. Now, as followers of Jesus, you can be a generous person, a merciful person, a gracious person, 
a giving person, an engaged participatory person, because all of that hope is now in Jesus and not in an outcome. Take the time this morning to repent of the outcome that you cannot control and place all of that hope in Jesus who is in control of all things. Would you stay with me for these closing moments? Jesus, by your spirit, there are souls in the room now that are hungry for you or they're thirsty for you, but they're trying to feed that hunger or satisfy that thirst with water that does not quench and food that does not satisfy. There are souls in the room this morning, Lord Jesus of heaven, that are putting their hope in outcomes they have no control over. And so they frantically run around trying to control the outcome by making small adjustments to their life when really all they need to do is surrender to you. So dear friend, might you have the courage to lay at the feet of Jesus everything you're trying to control this Advent season. Perhaps you can just put your hands out in front of you and open them and say, I give it all to you, Jesus. I give you that person that I'm trying to control. I'm gonna give you that child that I'm trying to control. I'm gonna give you that paycheck that I'm trying to control. I'm gonna give you that job situation that I'm trying to control. I'm gonna give you the marriage dynamic that I'm trying to control. I'm gonna give you everything that I've put my hope in that is not placed in your hands and at your feet. I'm going to finally give it to your hands and give it before your feet, Lord Jesus. May your spirit just wash over this room, sweep in this room like a gentle breeze. May your spirit fall on us like a warm blanket, God, and cover us even in these final moments of this service, Jesus, as we reflect back on the hope that is the coming Savior of the world, God in a manger, wealth, in poverty. Oh, Jesus, may that make us new again. And for those in the room, Jesus, this morning, would you just nudge right now, spirit, would you nudge them that today would be a wonderful day to place their hope in you and to take a step of faith of baptism. And so if there's someone in the room this morning, Lord Jesus, that is on the fence about getting dunked, God, would you just move in this moment? We trust in you. We trust you for the outcome. We cannot control the outcome. There's no amount of environmental factors we can control, Lord Jesus, that would move someone to be baptized. Only you can do that living spirit of God. But I know, Lord Jesus, that there are many of us this morning that are on the fence about you, that need to get off of the fence about you and begin to put our trust and our hope in you in a brand new, fresh way where all of the hope is now placed at your feet and into your hands. So Father, would you just move in that person? Spirit, would you come upon that person now? Would you warm their souls? Would you warm their hearts? Would you warm their minds to that reality? Friend, there's a, a heated bathroom with a change of clothes and the private bathrooms. There's a warm water to be baptized in. It would be a joy and an honor to baptize you in the name of Jesus. So Father, we trust you with these final moments and we're so thankful for a morning that we can reflect on you and participate in a meal afterwards. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus.